Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, exploring the minds of folk music's great artists. If you love the stories behind bluegrass, Irish, folk and Americana, then this podcast is for you. This is Enda Scahill from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Natalie McMaster is one of Canada's most celebrated musicians and easily my favourite Cape Breton fiddler. On this episode of Inside the Banjoverse, hear how Natalie juggles six children, not literally, home life, touring life, marriage to Donnell Leahy, and how I ended up taking her shoes off live on stage. live from my uh, studio in Galway with the wonderful Natalie McMaster and Natalie is in Canada in Ontario so uh, how you doing Natalie how's lockdown life treating you? I'm doing great I'm so glad to talk to you and hello everybody here we are isn't this cool that we can chat like this? I know I know I mean, you've been on the road for many many years is is this this is very abnormal for you to be at home for this length of time is it? It is. It is indeed, you know, and it's it, uh, that's well put, you know, when I think of traveling through my teens um, and prior to that, too, but doing extensive traveling through my teens and then through the 20s and 30s. And now I'm 47 is just never stopped. Like you might get a couple months off to, to deliver a baby to give birth or something. <laughs> <laughs> and where do you go? So, yeah, it, it is very different. Yeah, it's nice that you give yourself a couple of months off for that. Yeah, well, I treat myself well. <laughs> so uh, you brought out your first album at the age of 16, which in any language is very impressive because that that's very young to, to tackle recording an album. I suppose so. I look at my kids now and I think my oldest is 14 and I'm thinking, oh, putting out a record for her if she was to put a record and it's like only two years away. And um it's yeah like at the time it was a bigger statement i think because then recording studios were big and scary and now they're in your house um and in those days it was cassette it was still recording on the cassette tape so i was so oblivious to the recording world that i recorded every track in order as it would occur on the record i didn't realize you could record anything you wanted first and stick it in whatever order and, and I did the whole thing in a day, recorded and mixed. I was so prepared. Wow, in one day? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's unheard. There's a great story from 
there's a sound engineer that does live sound for Martin Hayes. Um, his name escapes me just right now. And he tells a story about two old men that come into the studio and they want to record an album. And so they, uh, Matt, Matt Purcell in Ennis, and they ask Matt, they say, how, uh, how, how long, or he said, how much, how much is the studio per hour? So Matt tells them what the hourly rate is. And they were like, okay, okay. they consulted each other and they say, and uh, how long is an album? And Matt say, and you know, about 40, 45 minutes. And so they consult again and they go, we'll take the full hour. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Good fella. Oh, yeah. Good fella. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> were, were, you, were you always ambitious? I mean, you at 16 recording an album, there's a certain amount of ambition there for sure. But in terms of becoming a professional musician, was that always what you wanted to do? Well, I went to teacher's college, Nova Scotia Teacher's College. I have a teaching degree. That was when I was 18. I, I went to college. Um, and I, my intention back then, I didn't realize you could do this for a living or as a career. I wasn't thinking like that. I mean, at the time, my heroes were Buddy McMaster, my uncle, and you know, the local, various local Cape Breton fiddlers, and they all had jobs, and then they played fiddle on the side. <clears throat> so that was my, that's what I was shooting for. And so uh, after my third year of college, I realized I'm never going to teach because I actually was so busy, I decided I'm not going to go to college anymore. I finished my degree through correspondence, and yeah, it was never, it was never a contender, really. Once I started getting into the world of music, and and your question about ambition, I'm I'm so I'm, ambition has has become such a curiosity to me as the years go on, and I realize now I had it very naturally at a young age, without even recognizing it. I didn't recognize it. You just go and you do, and now as you get older and you get a little more, I, I suppose worn a bit, especially when you're parenting and juggling a whole bunch of things plus the responsibility of life. It, it, it pounds a bit on your ambition. And now ambition for me is a little more tried, you know, it doesn't quite come quite so naturally. Sometimes I have to go seek motivation. Okay. So do you currently have big goals that you want to achieve then? I do. <clears throat> I have more goals than I have time left in my life, I'm sure. Um, and they're motivated always by creativity and just, oh my gosh, that's such a great idea. I got to do it. Like, for example, I, I'm going to be writing a children's book. I, I've been saying that for years, but now I'm really doing it because I have the time to do it. And it just makes so much sense. I wanted to do symphony, you know, recordings with symphonies. I've done so much touring with them over the years and I have no project of, with them. And I want to do that. Danelle and I have enough material for two records. And just, I went to my mom's place back in January to finish off some writing um, I have like a thousand voice memos with just started bits of music that I've never, like, I never have time to finish. So I went there and I went for five days and I sat in her office, like from seven in the morning till midnight every day. And she's like, are you ever going to come out? You're just coming out to eat. I thought we were getting a visit. And so my point is just that if, if given this space, I will just go crazy and produce mental thoughts or music or concepts or you know arrangements whatever so I, I guess i i guess i'm yeah i'm very creative and do you need do you need space to be creative you have seven children which 
by any stretch of the imagination is obviously a busy household. So yeah. do you need mental space where you get away from it all and then allow ideas to bubble up? Or is it is that just happening the whole time? It's happening, but I can't sink my teeth into it. So my children, when they play, they're music going on in the house all the time. We have a big grand piano in kind of our main living area. So that was a dumb idea. <laughs> there it is. So there's music. Somebody's hammering on it all the time. And there's guitars around. There's a, a drum kit back here. And there's a little keyboard and fiddles in the corner over there. See my little fiddle in the corner. Uh-huh. That's, that's fiddle. And so there's stuff going on all the time. And I'm hearing, like, believe it or not, they're, they're a source of motivate or they're a source of, uh, inspiration for melodies and things and and creative ideas so i get out my voice recorder and or the voice voice memo on an iphone and i blah, 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 into that and to actually follow it through and do something with it no i need space i need a place where no one is at me and the phone doesn't ring and that's hard to get like i'm responsible for this family my youngest is two so you can't just say see you later I get the impression that you love being a musician and you love the lifestyle. Is it something that you would wish for your children? Oh, isn't that a great question? Oh, I, Janelle and I ask ourselves that often. Like, some of it's not good, right? Traveling, like, even for relationships. Janelle and I are lucky because we're both in the industry and we get it, but I mean... We all know stories of other people who it just doesn't work, you know, and for having children. I mean, again, we're lucky. We, we, we've had our family kind of had our been able to keep keep our music love and passion going on a level that we can sustain ourselves. But also our children have been born along the way. and We've had this family life. So we feel we've gotten that out of life. But that's not an easy go. So we know that side of things. Uh, from both perspectives, would I wish it for my children? It's personality types, you know, it's personalities. It's, I look at some of our kids and I mean, all of them really, I hope they have music in their lives, but some of them really stand out to me as, as people who are really driven musically and they just have to, have to have it predominantly their whole life I just see that I mean who knows what time will unfold but um so I think some of them will have a life of music and maybe others might have a, a bit of music on the side I'm not sure mm. would you I, s- it's so hard to wish for something because again you don't it's all your internal you know what would a person what makes them happy in life and, and what they're inclined to do what they're most talented at yeah uh, yeah do any of us have the right to wish anything for our children except that they're healthy and pursue something that they love themselves? I mean, that's the most that we can wish for. Would you would you say that you're a perfectionist? And, you know, you, you talk about personality traits in your children. And I would know from myself, and my son is quite like me, that I would be very perfectionistic, which has driven me to become very good at what I do. But it also brings that double-edged sword where it's quite painful and quite difficult sometimes to continually try to achieve a standard that you've set for yourself. Would you identify with that? I certainly would. Am I a perfectionist? I've always said I'm not a perfectionist. And then other people who are around me saying, oh, you're too fussy. You're a perfectionist. I'm like, no, I'm not. 
I'm working real hard just to let it go at half here, you know? Um, so I, I still don't see myself as a perfectionist. Um, I just hear things a certain way and it's either that or it's not. So I ha- it has to be that. And, and I let things go within that that are acceptable, kind of, but no one else would know. I don't know. Um, but as far as, as letting things, I, I do find I have this new kind of philosophy in life, which is, oh, that's good enough. You know, because I don't physically have the time, like being, being, say if I'm cooking something or I make these elaborate birthday cakes for my kids and I'd be spending more time at getting those certain things right, but I just don't have it. Like, so what do you do? You just say, well, it's good enough. And you're just like, oh, cringing, but you let it go, be it whatever it is. Are there hard lessons that you've learned from being on the road for, for such a length of time? And if you were advising a young artist or a young band, you know, there's classic pitfalls that can be avoided if you know what to look for. I'll tell you one thing I never did because I couldn't was take a drink if I had to play. If I was playing a show or even playing at a party, I would not have a drink because I can't play and even have one drink of alcohol I just can't play as well and I hate going being in a situation where I'm less than what I am I, I just when it comes to music no if you want me to play I'll have my drink after I play so yeah any show anything anytime not even half a glass of wine with supper three hours before show I can't do that it just relaxes me and everything's happy and good no I want I want to keep my edge so I think because of the motivation of wanting to play my best um, in any circumstance, um, I that that little and it's, it wasn't even a rule. It's not even a rule. I just don't do it. I don't. I just, I just don't do that. And so I think that's helped me over the years. Like I would say to people, make sure that if you're a musician and you want to do it for a living, be good every time and don't. Uh, do things that will sacrifice that. For example, staying up late. We all know what that's all about, you know. Uh, there's a certain few festivals over your way that uh, really inspire one to want to stay up, which I have, uh, till, you know, 6 and 7 in the morning. And it's been great. And you should experience those things in life. But try and do it on, on a day where you don't have a rehearsal at noon. With, you know, like that's just dumb. Um, do it the next night, you know, or something. So those things in mind. Yeah, I mean, famously in your old stomping ground of uh, Nova Scotia, there's a, a very famous festival where going to bed is a serious disadvantage. And that's uh, <laughs> Celtic Colours. The, the first time I did it and I went back to the hotel, I went to bed for a few hours and then the drivers come and pick you up at two o'clock in the morning to play at the festival club. And it's it's the most remarkable experience. It's utterly 
the most exhausting festival on planet Earth. But it's it's just wonderful. I, I love it. You've obviously played there loads of times. There's a very famous video of you and Sharon Shannon playing at that, actually. two in the morning that that's that I think they got that from Celtic connections I mean I was there the days that Joella Foles and Max McDonald went to Celtic connections to get a model of uh or something not not direct model with everything identical but I mean there was lots of uh, elements about that festival that they loved and I was there with them when they were there you know hanging out at the party and loving that energy that only comes at that hour in the morning it only comes then, and it's magic. And yeah, you have to be a good, tough old broad to get through it and and do the performance. But yeah, it's good fun, and you just have to pace yourself. You are going to do stupid things, but it's a it's a special kind of madness, particularly Celtic connections in Glasgow, because there's a particular type of drunkenness that they're able to achieve in Scotland. Yeah, I haven't been able to master that. That takes practice, I'll tell you. It's a, I think it's a lifetime of practice, possibly to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> what, what is so special about Cape Breton fiddling? Oh, you know, I, I'm obviously believe in Cape Breton fiddling. I believe it's the wrong word. I'm obviously a lover within the very fiber of who I am, of that style of music, because I think that there's 
a depth and a richness that is so unique and so connected to like family and Scotland and the history and the hardship and humor, sense of humor and the land and appreciation for all things, your faith, values. I think that's all interwoven. And I hear this depth that is like a flavor. It's a major seasoning in the music. It's it's so flavorful. And uh, it's got, it, its attributes are this amazing groove that does not rush. It's like a train. It just goes and look out. It's coming right past you. And you can hang on, hang on. Like it's just going to carry you away. Danelle would always say, my husband, Danelle, I, I got married 17, 18 years ago. And Danelle's from Ontario. His mom's from Cape Breton. But when he would come visit me, he, he grew up in Ontario. When he'd come visit me, he'd say, those house parties, we used to have house parties at our place. And he'd be like, you know, people don't move for hours. They just sit there. He said, I keep waiting for someone to get up to go to the bathroom. But. They just sit there kind of in a trance listening to the music. He said, it's kind of like the music's rhythm is so powerful. It just kind of puts you in a trance. And and I can, from an outsider's point of view, um, not that Danelle's so much of an outsider, but he's seeing it from fresh eyes. And I can see how those rhythms and this energy in the music creates just a kind of a trance or a hypnotic groove. It just carries you away. It's connected to the dancing as well, too. As probably one of the best known Cape Breton fiddlers in the world, I would say, and I've seen your show many times. And funnily enough, the very first time I went to America was in 2000 or 2001. And we played Cleveland Irish Festival and the Saw Doctors were there and you were there. And if I remember correctly, you had a red tour bus. Everybody was very excited about your tour bus. That was a long time before people had tour buses. Okay. Um, but your show was incredible and you danced and you played the fiddle and it's ex- extremely entertaining and engaging. Did you did that always come naturally to you or was that something that you developed when you realized how, how important it is to develop a music career? So it wasn't quite that obvious to me, but it was developed for sure. Um, So when I was 19, I was asked, or actually I tried out for this, and it got the part for this uh, group, this traveling group in Cape Breton called the Cape Breton Summertime Review. And it was like the whole summer we did shows all around Cape Breton. You might do five nights in Sydney and then, you know, here, here, there. So you're, you're at each place for an extended period of time. And it was a show that involved music and um, acting. It it was comedy. Um, And so I was so excited because I grew up attending these shows. And here I was, I was in one. And so during the two weeks of the pre-production, they asked me, could you stand up and play the fiddle? So I didn't want to say no. And I'm like, sure. So here I am in the house band, and for the first time, I'm 19, for the first time I'm standing up. I might have been 18, but I think I think I was 19. Anyway, so I'm standing up, and it feels so awkward. And so anyway, we do the stuff, I learn all the parts, and I'm so focused, and I'm so eager. And then opening night comes, we do the show, my mom and dad are there, they're seeing it for the first time, 
show finishes, I'm all excited and everybody's happy and happy. And then a little while later, my mom gets me alone and she said, Natalie, she said, do something up there. She said, you look like you're, we don't care, you're sad or you're, you, you wouldn't even know you were enjoying yourself. Do something, move your leg or something. So I was like, oh my God. And so, yeah, over the course of that summer, I tried to look a little more like visually to the crowd. I was really enjoying myself and engaged. And so let's, let's, let's skip ahead to like maybe three years later, I'm doing a concert in Cape Breton and the show finishes and I'm all nervous. And my, my brother, David comes to me and says, Natalie, would you control yourself? You're moving. You look so weird on stage. Like you're. You're jumping all over the place, like settle down. So it like went from one extreme to the other. So somewhere over the years, I've found a balance of look like you're enjoying yourself, but don't look like an idiot. deliver music because even though we're making great music and playing stuff the crowd hears with their eyes oftentimes they have to know they have they have to have a proof that you love what you do and sometimes you have to come outward sometimes you have to uh get away from your own zone and project into their world you know how you do that it's it's always individual is it, is it ever a struggle? Oh, gosh, yeah. There are some nights where I might be really feeling the music, but I'm just kind of feeling antisocial, you know? And, yeah, that's more more effort because you don't want to let them down, especially if they have an expectation. And then there are other nights where, oh, my gosh, anything you say or anything you do, it's just a piece of cake. It's just like everything is so fluid and you're funny and you're happy and there's energy. You don't have to work. It's just like, you know, who knows what the reason is. Do you have terrible nights when you come off stage and you're like, that was awful. I played awful. I hate this. I just want to go home and go to the farm and forget about it all. I wouldn't go to the point of I hate this and I want to forget about it all. I would go to the point of like, definitely I've had nights where I'm just like, oh, gosh, I don't deserve to be up here. Like, that was not fair. It was just, like, not good. Um, it's never for lack of trying. Some nights just the stars are not aligned. And for whatever reason, maybe it's an accumulation of not practicing enough. Um, maybe it's, I don't know, sometimes your focus is not there. Uh, and it just makes me want to try harder next time like I can't let that happen again you know mm. I've, got to, I've got to spend two hours warming up before the show 
I have to arrange it so that I'm not nursing before I go on stage or whatever it is. You know, I try and make adjustments. Do would you warm up for that length of time before a show? Is that normal for you? No, <laughs> no, that's a bit extreme. But there were days. Well, that was my point that I have to warm up more. There'd be normally before I did have juggling you know, the lives of children, not to blame them, but when we take them with us, oftentimes, you know, you're consumed with parenting. It's inevitable, even if you do have help. Um, but before those days, oh, I would warm up for an hour. I'd play an hour before I'd go on stage. So my point about the two hours was an hour is not long enough. You better go harder. I haven't warmed up for an hour before a performance um in a long time like this last run of shows i did that they canceled because of the virus i was probably warming up an hour because i i didn't have my younger children with me i just had my oldest daughter so i had the mental space to do that i didn't have anything else to do you know be a great show have a great show um but when we're traveling usually at christmas shows and stuff like that we take all our children it's really hard even though you try your best it's really hard to to have that time Hmm. What's it? What's it like traveling with the whole family? I mean, you've covered some of it, but having seven kids in 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 the bus and doing Christmas shows on the road for a couple of weeks—is it challenging or is it brilliant, or both? It's both. I remember my husband did an interview, and the interviewer asked asked him, you know, is it hard touring with children? And Danelle said it's way harder touring without them, and that is the answer. Do not take them and just say, see you later. We'll be back in a month. That's That doesn't feel right to me. And I've always said, I'm not so attached to anything, especially my career, to, to put other important things on the back burner. Like, I'm, I'm not, I had my time. I've had my time. I had, you know, up until I was, I got, we had my first child when I was 33. So I had all that time for myself and I don't feel one ounce of regret or, you know, or wishing for something that was, no, I had that time. Now I've evolved to me and my husband and I still do things on my own as well. And I've evolved to, we, we do have kids that play music and they need to play. And luckily, you know, they, they can do some music with us and, that's what I am now. And uh, that is very important and has its great value. And from a parental point of view, you just want your kids, you want to see them achieve, you want to see them get confidence, you want to see them um, believe in themselves or have a passion in life or be able to know when to be able to fail in a safe environment you know, where they realize I didn't do this enough to prepare or whatever. And when you travel with your kids, you get all those occasions to have those environments where you see them succeed and fail, a fail in a safety net, of course, so that they're growing and they're discovering and they're learning and they're given all these opportunities. Like, I just feel so awesome that we can provide our kids with all these great opportunities. So that is wonderful. Is it hard? The stupid things are hard. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't get to put my lipstick on or, you know, my foot is sore and I would have went to this drugstore and got like a, you know, Dr. Show something or other, but I have to deal with the pain. What do you do? Or, oh my gosh, you know, someone's going to go to the bathroom just before I have to do a solo. So here, I'll help you. 
those are just dumb little things. They're not important in the grand scheme. That's amazing to be able to balance all of that. Uh, and, and you know, I, I have a son who's 10 and I, I go away for weeks on end and it is tough. He gets to come with, with us on tour uh, during the summertime. We do the festivals and he got to yeah. hang out with um, Next Generation Lee a couple of years yeah. ago and he adored those girls. Uh, he had oh. such a good time at Milwaukee. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Oh. Um, a few weeks ago, I saw a piece of music that you did online with uh, the victim of the one of the victims from the Cape Breton shooting, a fiddler. Yeah. It was it was yeah. a r- remarkable uh, video. Was mm-hmm. that was that difficult? Well, first of all, the shootings were not in Cape Breton Island. They were on mainland Nova Scotia. So um, fortunately for us, we didn't have anybody that we knew personally, you know, or no, no relatives or anything. But the area where it happened, um, the, one of the girls who lived there, we found out maybe a couple of days after the shootings happened that she was a fiddler. In fact, Danelle, it was Danelle who showed me. He said, oh, my gosh. He said, I don't think I can let you watch this because he was tearing up. And he knows I'm really sentimental. And so after a few moments or whatever, he said, okay, come see this. And he showed me the sweetest video of her playing um, a piece of music uh, called Herbie McLeod's, written by Jerry Holland on a um, this kitchen party thing they were doing for COVID. Um, I think it's called the COVID kitchen party or ultimate kitchen party. I think that's what it was. And, and so, um, yeah, I watched it and I was really kind of amazed that one of these victims shared so much of a connection with me, just like her being 17. I remember what life was like playing the fiddle at 17. I remember oh so well and how you're so hopeful for what the future might hold. And it's just an exciting time in your life. Um, yeah, it was really devastating early and about a day after that they had asked if I would contribute something to a memorial or a celebration of life for the souls and um and so I said sure and then I was trying to think of what to play and then I said to Danelle well I gotta play that tune and then it was Danelle who said why don't you play it with her and then we worked to get you know basically me listening to her play it and uh Myself and my daughter accompanied her, and we were able to play music with with Emily, who, who passed away. Just, yeah, it was it was a, a different experience for me, and uh, like I I never felt that kind of attention to her. So, like listening to her play and trying to coordinate my timing with how she felt the tune and how she played the tune. And knowing that she's not in this world anymore, and hopefully she's, you know, watching from a better place, um, which I have faith in that. So it was an amazing experience. I want to play a tune for you that I chose because of a beautiful performance I saw a couple of days ago, played by one of the victims, Emily Tuck. And... uh, she was a fiddler. So I thought I would unite myself to her performance and play this tune for all the souls that lost their lives. Okay, so your right. contribution to the COVID kitchen party. Herbie McLeod. 
Wicked. So I have one last question for you, Natalie, and I'm going to let you go after this. How many Irish banjo players have removed your shoes live on stage as you're playing the fiddle? Just you, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) That that's that's in my that's in my top five strangest onstage experiences ever. So what happened? I my shoe was bothering me, and I asked you to take it off. Or yeah, something. I think it was Winnipeg Folk Festival two years ago. So you're there with your full band, amazing musicians, and you're rocking out in the fiddle. I'm sitting down, trying to stay out of the way, and then you sit down beside me, and you're like, "Hey, take off my shoe!" And I'm like, "What? What? Take off! Take off my shoe!" So. And there were like these strappy sandal things and it was really fiddly. And so I managed to get them both off and then you were gone off across the stage. <laughs> oh my gosh. Were you playing when I asked you to do that? No, were I was playing. No, just sit there listening to you. We had kind of played together and then we were doing individuals. So this was your, your, your piece. Yeah, I know. I, I remember, I even remember, I remember the festival, obviously, but I also remember that stage. It was like a workshop stage. And I remember there was three bands. But I just couldn't remember if you were sit- like at some point, I think we played tunes together, right? We were all sitting down, we yeah. played tunes together. I wasn't sure if it was at that moment. That would have been extra rude if I asked. <laughs> Here's, <that's>, <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop playing the banjo and take off my shoes. <laughs> I'll tell you, I don't treat Danelle like that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I, I'll always remember it, Natalie. <laughs> 
Listen, thank Life has to be filled with those very unique experiences, eh? Indeed, indeed. Listen, thank you so much. I'm going to play loads of your music. I absolutely. And, you know, for me, playing with you live on stage, I've been listening to you since I was a kid. And we're not that much different in age, but it feels like when I was 17 or 18, I was listening to Natalie McMaster. And it was an amazing experience because it was a new style of fiddling for for us to hear as Irish musicians. And, you know, to play with somebody like you on stage was a great honor. And uh, and it's beautiful to talk to you today. And I wish you and Danelle and all your family well. And hopefully, probably next year, we'll catch up again on the road sometime. That'd be great. That'd be great. And we're such we band of three fans. Like my kids are downstairs, like, oh my gosh, they're so pumped that I'm doing this interview, right? They don't even know my own stuff. I'm like I'm like old news because I'm just the mom, right? But you're the star. So this is so great to be able to chat with you. Can't wait to see the interview and uh yeah, can't wait to see you guys and play music sometime. It's coming, I know it. Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time inside the podcast.